Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Saturday 16th of February, Liam Thatcher taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Liam teaches us about the Synoptic Gospels. Liam is one of the teaching pastors at Christchurch London and a regular speaker and writer on theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. Tell us a little bit about yourself, first off. Uh, sure, yeah, my name's Liam. I live in London uh, with my wife, Helen, my little daughter, Jessie, um, both of whom came up with us last night, um, which was a delight, having a two-and-a-half-year-old in a car um, screaming about how much she wanted to be in Manchester. Well, I always grew up... Uh, my mum my was a Christian, so always took me to church. It was a very, very, very traditional church, um, uh, which I have nothing against traditional churches, but this was like everything was in Latin at times, and so I had no idea what was going on. Um, and uh, but I went, and I was a choir boy, um, uh, just because it was a great way of getting paid to go to church. Um, a trend I've continued to this day, actually, but now, now I believe the stuff. So, um, uh, but I kind of, so I, I don't remember a time when I didn't believe in God, but it wasn't really real for me, and I, I think... I was definitely living a bit of a double life in my teens, uh, going along being the good church boy, and then uh, not so much the rest of the week round. Uh, and it was when I went to university, I thought, great, this is my chance to break away from the church. I'll never have to go again. But I thought, well, I'll go maybe just once or twice, went to a church and um, found that there were people my age who were talking about faith as if it really made a difference to their lives. And I'd never really seen that before. And so that just got me thinking about a whole load of things. And I was studying philosophy at the time. It's my first experience of being a church that believed in the power of the Holy Spirit. I've been told this Holy Spirit hadn't done anything before. So like, I, I, was, I was really confused, but um, excited. And that sort of led me on a journey. So, oh, yeah. Fantastic. Great to hear a bit of your story there. Mm. So obviously you teach a lot on theology, mm. you write on theology. Yeah. Just share, I mean, we're at School of Theology. What do you love about learning theology and teaching theology? Just want to just share that before I pray for you. Yeah, great. I, well, I love, um, I love the breadth of it. So, I mean, we, we, theology is the study of God, right? So it's not a small subject. Um, in fact, it is an infinite subject and we will never get to the end of it. And so I love the fact that there is so much depth and breadth to it. Um, and so there's some like really academic stuff that people talk about that really makes no difference to people's lives. But what I love is when you get to talk about deep, meaningful things that actually affect the way we live and the way we are able to share about Jesus and, um, and follow him. So I love a theology when it is meaty and it's difficult but then it actually makes a difference to how I pray how I live how I interact with people so, fantastic yeah. well let me just pray for you just Thanks. before we start and then we'll hand over to you <clears throat> father we pray that you bless our morning together I pray that you speak to us uh, through through Liam uh, speak to us powerfully I pray that your presence will be manifestly amongst us here um, we learn things Lord but we wouldn't learn things just to get smarter Lord, we, we learn things to grow in our relationship with you and become more obedient disciples of you, Father. Yeah. So bless our time together. Pray for fun, pray for enjoyment, uh, pray for a great morning together. And, and be with Liam, we pray in your name. Amen. 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 Great. Well, thank you. It is really good to be with you. And uh, yeah, I had the privilege of kicking off the first session of the first year of this course. And uh, it's great to see that none of the other speakers have messed it up too badly. You're, 
you're still here. Well, I don't know that. I mean, Matt Fell may have taught heresy last time, but I'm here to straighten that out, so that's okay. Um, thank you. Uh, it's, it's, so it's really great to be back, and, and actually it's great to see there are more people here than last time. Um, I take it that's because you heard my first session was so good, and you've been hanging on for my second session, so uh, great to see you here. And uh, we're going to look at the Gospels today, um, and in particular the Synoptic Gospels, and if that word synoptic doesn't mean much to you, don't worry, uh, one of the first things I do will be explain that. Um, but just to give you some context, I tend to teach two days on the Gospels, and I always find in those two days I don't have enough time to get through everything. So in these, these couple of hours, we're not going to get through everything about Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, or the Kingdom of God, uh, but we are going to go quite quickly. Um, so we do a little bit of group work here and there, but not loads of group work, because I want to kind of keep us moving forward. But I do want to still keep a sort of high level of interactivity. So if I say something that doesn't make sense, or uh, well, which is quite possible, um, or, or just could be clarified better, Uh, then do ask questions as we go. If I don't have time for the question or we're going to cover it later or I can't answer it, I'll fob you off and pretend like it's always just because of time, but really I just don't have an answer. So uh, we'll we'll keep moving, but ask questions. And uh, and when I ask you questions, assume they're not rhetorical questions. Assume I want an answer. Shout out and uh, we'll keep a sort of level of fun and interactivity as we go through the day. So we are going to teach today on the synoptic gospels. Uh, Two words there, synoptic and gospel. And it's worth just first of all asking what do those two words mean? And we'll start with the word gospel. What is a gospel? At this point, I'm I'm, I'm talking about the books, the gospels, not what is the gospel. Um, What is a gospel and where did they come from? So next page in your notes. Um, I think the, the closest literary form for, for what a gospel is, is an ancient uh, form called a, a bios, which is a form of biography. And this kind of literature highlights key events that surrounded a particular person, their works and their words and their deeds. These are like ancient biographies that focus on a particular person so that you can understand who they are and why their life is worthy of study. And these sorts of ancient texts are really important uh, and really insightful, but it's, we need to understand how they work. We need to understand what they are trying to do and what they are not trying to do. They are historical documents, but they are not expected to be strictly chronological in order, but are often arranged thematically in order to emphasise the overall thrust and focus of an individual's life and work. So, you know, sometimes we read the Gospels and we're like, why is something in a different order in this one to, to in this one? And people kind of get a bit frustrated about that. Actually, this ancient literature, this style of literature, which, which was not a religious thing. Roman emperors and various people would have their stories written in this way. No one in the first century was worrying too much about the order of things because they understood this type of book was arranged in order to help you understand the emphasis uh, or the themes of this person's life. They are historical documents. They're considered to be true, but they are not necessarily strictly chronological. So first of all, what is a gospel? Well, I think it's this kind of thing. It is a story of Jesus designed to help you understand his words, his works, his deeds, and the main themes of his life. But where do these gospels come from? Well, uh, they didn't fall out of the sky fully formed uh, and packaged together in leather bound like with the words in red. Like they, That's not how they came to us. They were created. They were written by human beings. And I know that sort of sounds a bit obvious, but I think it's important to realise that these were the works of creative human beings. And if you've studied uh, biblical studies at any level, and I don't know if you have in this room, um, actually, who has studied maybe at university theology or biblical studies? No one. Okay. Fantastic. Oh, 
Pun- one, one. Oh no, oh just you, yes. Well, church history is not quite the same, is it? You know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not proper. Not proper. I'm now standing as far away from him as I can. Because <laughs> he's definitely got drumsticks near him. So, um... Uh, yeah, if you study biblical studies at any level, then you will look at various theories for how, uh, how, how the Gospels were put together. And you will look at various forms of criticism, which I won't bother dwelling on because it's probably not that relevant to most of us. But uh, things like source criticism, which seeks to reconstruct the original sources of the documents. Form criticism, which breaks down the books into sections and tries to work out the original setting for each little bit, each story or item. And then redaction criticism, which seeks to study how and why the documents were compiled as they were, and and thus what is the purpose of the text. And and there are huge books and, and, and schools of thought on how we can use these forms of criticism to understand how the books were put together. And there's some mileage and some value in all of that, uh, but it can be a bit unhelpful and limited, and it's way too boring to get into here. But let's look at what Luke says about his own gospel, because I think this is quite telling. It gives us an idea of how and why the books were put together. Could someone read for me Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4? It's there uh, in your notes on the right-hand side. Someone with a loud voice. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. Thank you. So this is how Luke begins his gospel. I think it's interesting because it tells us something of the process that he went through in writing this gospel. So many eyewitnesses, verse two, orally, verbally communicated the stories about Jesus, which were then written and compiled by various people which Luke researched over quite some time and then wrote his own account, which was arranged for a particular purpose and sent to its intended recipient. I think it's really interesting to see that. They didn't just drop out of the sky fully formed. Luke had a whole load of of, of verbal stories which had been written down, which he took and he assessed and he selected the bits of and he put together for a particular reason. And understanding that is really important to understanding the Gospels, and we will come back to that in a moment. So what is a Gospel? It's a a biography that was put together for a particular reason. Next page. The second word. What is synoptic? Uh, What does synoptic mean? And and what are the synoptic Gospels? Well, the word synoptic uh, is is two words put together. Syn, uh, S-Y-N, not S-I-N, meaning together, and optic meaning view. And together, those two words mean a a together view, a unified view. So Matthew, Mark and Luke are often called the synoptic gospels because they, unlike John, seem to share one particular view of Jesus. There's a lot of similarity between these three books, which is why we are studying these ones now and you study John separately, because it is a unique kind of book. There's a lot of crossover between them, and there's a rather geeky um, expanded pie chart there on the right-hand side, which um, some of you will be like, oh, wow, and most of you will be like, oh, you're such a geek. But So I'm not going to go through it, but what's clear is that there is enormous amount of content that is shared between these three Gospels. There's a huge amount of Mark that is used in the others. So 76% of Mark's Gospel also appears in Matthew and Luke. 
And so scholars uh, think that actually these people had one view and probably used the same sorts of sources, maybe used each other's gospels in compiling their own. And the most likely hypothesis is that Mark was the gospel that was written first and that Matthew and Luke both drew upon Mark's account and possibly some other sources as well to write their own accounts. Um, So Mark was probably written mid to late 50s, Matthew maybe late 50s, maybe early 60s, Luke early 60s. It's hard to tell, but chances are Mark came first and the others used Mark and other Gospels. And if you have studied um, biblical studies at all or maybe read a commentary that's a little bit in depth, uh, you'll find that sometimes people talk about this text called Q. I don't know if you've heard of that, not the, the Bond character. Like uh, It's, it's a, um, a text that people imagine existed that, that probably predated the Gospels and that the Gospel writers drew on. And it comes from the German word quell, meaning source. And um, when I studied biblical studies as a master, uh, master's, I was in the library and they had all these um, different commentaries just lined up. And there were more commentaries on one shelf about Q, this document that we have no access to, but people think they can reconstruct. There were more on that than there were on the Gospel of Mark, which I found baffling. So loads of scholars um, have sought to try and reconstruct what this mystery source might be that lies behind the Gospels. Yeah, I think there probably was one because Luke tells us there was a Q and an R and an S and a T and a U and a V because he drew on many different sources. And I don't think it's a problem to think that Matthew, Mark and Luke may have drawn on other texts here and there. Actually, I think that's quite natural because people were so moved and challenged and changed by the Jesus story. They wanted to write it down and that those sources then became part of what is now the gospel tradition. So when we are talking about the synoptic gospels, we are talking about three gospels in particular, Matthew, Mark and Luke, which share one view of Jesus. They probably shared certain sources. The writers, they researched, they spoke to people, they had personal experience for some of them. They looked at various sources and they put something together in a particular order for a particular reason, possibly to convince a particular group of people something about Jesus. And it's those Gospels that we're going to look at today. On the next page, um, we're going to skip over this, but uh, you may find it interesting to look at an example of Uh, how the Gospels probably reused each other's material. So it looks at the feeding of the 5,000 and um, some of the words that are shared between them, but we don't need to look at that now. So let's move on to the next page after that. Why are there differences between the accounts? Why do we have four Gospels? Why didn't they just get together and co-author something? Why do we have four Gospels and why are there differences between them? Well, I want to suggest two reasons. And the first is this, the authors were selective. They didn't include everything that Jesus did. None of them did. Even between them, even between all four of them, they didn't include everything that Jesus did. And John admits that. So John says in John chapter 20, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did so many things and not all of them are included in the Gospels. So the Gospel writers were selective in what they chose to put there and they must have had a particular reason in mind for it. Incidentally, Jesus travelled and preached and he preached to different crowds at different times and there weren't podcasts so he couldn't assume that people had listened to his sermon before. So he probably told the same stories again and again and again and he probably told them in slightly different ways as well. So, I I mean, I've come here to preach and I'll preach tomorrow at some of your services and I'll 
do sermons that I will have done in, in London, but I'll change them a little bit because you're not going to like it if I just keep talking about how great London is. <laughs> so I've made certain changes to, I, though it's true, so I, I've made certain changes to the way that I tell familiar stories because I want them to resonate with a different audience. And same is probably true of Jesus. He would have told stories again and again and again. And one of the reasons they're different in the different accounts is probably because there were different times that Jesus told the stories applied in slightly different ways. The authors have been selective with the material they've chosen. But the second thing to bear in mind is that the authors were creative. That is, not only did they select some material to keep and some material to leave out, they also made choices over what order they put them in. And so when you read through the Gospels, sometimes you'll find that stories uh, or bits about Jesus' life or miracles seem to come in different orders according to the Gospel. And I think that's totally fine because the author is being creative. He has a goal in mind. And like the director of a film who just has tons of footage and then has to decide what goes in in order to tell the story in the most compelling way, the Gospel writers have been creative in the way that they have put their texts together. So, for example, sometimes in some of the Gospels, there are groups of teachings or groups of miracles. And you think, did they all happen together? Probably not. But the Gospel author probably put them together in order to emphasize a particular theme or just the sheer number of times Jesus did miracles. Or sometimes uh, you get a teaching and a miracle that are right next to each other, but they're not next to each other in another Gospel. And you've got to ask, why is that? It may be because the author wants you to see a link between the two. In John's gospel, there are no parables. In the other gospels, there are way more parables. Um, So you've got to ask, why is it that the authors have done these things, written these things in this particular way? I was going to give you an exercise, but actually I'll I'll just give you the answer instead, which is the best kind of exercise, right? If you were to compare the temptations in Matthew and in Luke, you find that they are in a different order. And for some people, this is really worrying because they're like, oh, the Bible can't be true because they're in a different order. This is an inconsistency. It's not an inconsistency. Everything is true. There's nothing about those gospel accounts that strictly contradicts or means that the other one can't be true. But the gospel writers have arranged the temptations in a particular order according to their agenda. So in Matthew's gospel, one of the central themes is the kingdom of God. And so he's arranged it so that the climax of that story is all about a challenge about the kingdom. So the Satan offering the kingdom to Jesus by a means other than the one that God had intended. In in Luke's gospel, Jerusalem is a key focus, as we'll see in a moment. And so in his gospel, the way he arranges the temptations, it ends with the, the Jerusalem temple being the end of the story, because both of them have an idea in mind, something particular they want to communicate about Jesus. So they've made creative choices to get there. Does that make sense? Is, is, that, a, um, is that an interesting idea? Is that a worrying idea for anyone? It's a good, yeah. So is this obsession with chronology, is that a fairly modern thing? Mm, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, uh, it, sorry, the question was, is, is the obsession with chronology a fairly modern thing? And I think the answer is yes. I think we have all sorts of obsessions that, that mean that we read all of the Bible through a particular lens. So um, we think any time anything about creation is mentioned, it must be scientific. So we read it through a scientific lens, and that shows a modern bias rather than an ancient bias. Or um, we, we're obsessed with chronology, all those sorts of things. And it simply wouldn't have been the case with this type of literature in the first century. Yeah. Great. Okay, so the authors were selective and the authors were creative. Each of them made artistic decisions about the material they left in um, and the material they left out and the way they arranged it because they wanted to emphasize something particular about Jesus' life, death and resurrection. So the next question is, what 
did they want to emphasise? And what did each author want to emphasise that was different from the other authors? Don't turn over your page. <laughs> I can see you're about to uh, go. Someone is, I'm trusting that those turning pages are now turning back a page um, rather than just outright defying me. Um, <laughs> so if we are to really understand each of the Gospels, we need to ask ourselves, um, what was the particular agenda that this Gospel writer had? What did this Gospel writer, as opposed to the others, particularly want to say about Jesus? To be clear, it's not what did Matthew want to make up about Jesus, but what did Matthew believe about Jesus would be most important for his hearers to hear? Therefore, how did he choose to arrange his gospel? And the way we answer that is by actually looking at the gospels and seeing what they did. And so we're going to do that with these three gospels. And um, we want to ask, I want to ask two particular questions. According to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, who is the Christ? Question one. And what is the crisis? So who is the Christ? Uh, who is he portraying Jesus to be? And what is the crisis? What is the thing he has come to deal with? And we're going to go through um, uh, each of those questions will be later in your notes. So don't worry about writing them down, but we're going to get to them. Um, but we're going to start with Matthew. Who is the Christ and what is the crisis? Now, don't turn over the page to Matthew because the answer is there and I want you to try and figure it out yourself. But a bit of background for Matthew. Matthew is often described as the most Jewish gospel because of his attention to detail about Jewish customs, his focus on ethics and the law, his criticism of the Jewish leaders and his regular reference to Old Testament scriptures. Again and again in Matthew, it's, this was done in order to fulfill X. This was done in accordance with X. Like constantly pointing us back to the Old Testament, showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of it. It may have been written to Jewish Christians uh, or to Christians in areas with large Jewish populations, possibly Syria or Palestine, helping them to see Jesus Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and giving them a, a, an ethical framework for how to live as kingdom people. That phrase will be really important in a minute. It's giving them an ethical framework for how to live as kingdom people. And a large amount of Matthew's gospel is given over to sustained blocks of Jesus' teaching. So if you read uh, through Matthew, these are the sorts of things you'll pick up. A lot of reference to Jewish stuff. Interesting. A lot of teaching, a lot of instruction. In particular, a lot of instruction for how to live as this group of kingdom people. Bear all that in mind. Now, what I want to do is just read to you a little bit of Matthew chapters 2 to 5. Well, actually, I'm not going to read it. I'm going to summarise something of the flow of it. And... As I read it, you'll recognise this because this is the Jesus story that we all know and love. But it also might remind you of another story. So I want you to be listening to this with almost two, two ears. I mean, you always listen with two ears. Two, two, two sets of, 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 of ways of thinking. What story does this remind you of? At the beginning of the Jesus story, the Christmas story, uh, there is a child who is saved from an evil king who is slaughtering children. He then flees for his life and has to live in a foreign land. He is able to return from that land after the death of the king. He is called the son of God. He then spends 40 days in a wilderness, after which he gives some teaching on a mountaintop. Does that remind you of any particular story? Yes. Yeah. Any, Moses. Yeah. Yeah. So Moses, let's see exactly, I mean, now you can turn over the notes because you've got the answer and you got it right. Well done. And I'm going to trust you actually got it right. You didn't just look ahead. But so that is so similar to the Moses story. So in the Moses story, you have a child who is saved for an evil king who is slaughtering children. He flees for his life and has to live in a foreign land, Egypt. He then returns after the death of the king 
Um, uh, actually, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Israel, uh, God's people, is called his son, the son of God. I think it's the first phrase, the first time we have the Son of God mentioned there. And it's about the people. It's about Israel, um, not just about one particular person. They then spend 40 years in a wilderness, whereas Jesus spent 40 days in a wilderness. And then, of course, Exodus, um, he receives this teaching on a mountaintop. And then if you extend this further, you find a whole load of other things that we just noticed about Matthew are true of the Moses story. So a lot of teaching, in particular, a lot of ethical teaching, how you should live as this group of people in a particular time or in a particular land. So it seems that Matthew has deliberately told the gospel story in order to make you think of Moses. So who is the Christ, according to Matthew? Well, I think it would say he's the new Moses. He is the fulfillment of the Moses story. He is the one that Moses pointed to, the true and better Moses. What is the crisis? What is the thing that this new Moses has come to do? Well, I think you can answer that a number of ways. And of course, if we had time to read through the gospel, we would look in more detail at how this comes out. But I think the crisis in Matthew is is exile. It's living sort of out of the purposes of God. Even though they were in the land at this point, they weren't really kind of in charge of the land. They weren't experiencing the full blessing that was promised to Abraham because they were being ruled over by Rome. And they had corrupt Jewish leaders as well. So the problem was exile. And so the way that Jesus, the new Moses, came to deal with that was to teach them how, to, uh, how it looks like to live under the rule of God, to live as the people of God. The way he did it was not to focus on the land, but to focus on the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like this, the Sermon on the Mount. The key thing in Matthew's gospel is the equivalent of Moses' teaching from the mountain. In fact, Jesus gave loads of teaching on the law and the importance of the law and how the law had been misunderstood and what the purpose of the law had been and therefore how it gets applied in the new covenant. It's like he has taken the Moses stuff and he brings it into a a, a sort of kingdom focus in order to understand what it was all truly about. Does that make sense? Great. Now, if we had time, like I often teach a whole like, hour on this section and there's loads that we could look at, which we don't have time to. But let's look at one final bit of Matthew. Turn over the page. <clears throat> and what I want to do is just compare the end of Deuteronomy and the end of Matthew. And um, it's the final speeches of Moses and Jesus. And what I'd like to do is this. Um, I'm going to get someone to read out Deuteronomy 31, 20, uh, 2 to 8, and then someone else to read out Matthew 28, 16 to 20. And as they're reading, uh, just write down any similarities between these two, and then I'm going to get you to shout them out in a moment. Uh, so would someone read Deuteronomy 31, 2 to 8? Someone, yep, yeah, great, thank you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you, so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head, as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them, as he did to Sinai of the kings of the Amorites into their land, when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you. And you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all of Israel, Be strong and courageous. 
for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. <coughs> he will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Great. So I imagine already your mind is going ahead to the end of Matthew, and you, you, a lot of this is familiar. But let's read it out. Uh, someone can read out Matthew twenty-eight sixteen to twenty. Would someone be happy to do that for me? Yeah. Brilliant. So, um, not a rhetorical question. I expect you to shout out. Um, what similarities do you notice between these two final speeches, Moses and Jesus? <coughs> Sorry? About moving onwards into the land. Yeah, okay. So it's, it's about going into the land. Um, d- d- does he say the same thing to both about the land? Yeah, interesting. Okay, so something about going on into the land. Uh, neither Moses nor Jesus are going to be the primary ones that go. Um, great. What are they told to do with the land? Take over. <laughs> Take over. Well, definitely in Deuteronomy. Is that the case in Matthew? Spiritually. <laughs> that's, that's a great, like, like get out clause for all Christians. <laughs> when you say something that sounds quite harsh, you just go spiritually speaking, <laughs> and that, that makes it okay. Well, it, it, in Deuteronomy, it seems like go in and like take over this land. Um, whereas in Matthew, it's more like go to the nations, not destroy the nations or drive them out. It's like go to the nations with something that actually brings blessing to them. Yeah. Um, other similarities. There's doubt in the congregation. Interesting. Yep, doubt. Yeah. So they need reassurance. They need comfort. They need not to be fearful. Yeah. And the Lord is with them. Sorry. And the Lord is with them. And the Lord is with them. Yeah. yeah. In both, in He makes exactly the same sort of promise. The Lord Himself will go before you, and God will never leave you. Yeah. Sent to specific people. Yep. Yep. Where do both of them take place? On a mountain. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think, I think Jesus knew what he was doing. I think Jesus understood uh, what he was trying to communicate, that he was launching the new exodus, as it were. Um, authority. Sorry? Authority also. Yeah, authority. Yeah, definitely. So, who, so given that we said um, that uh, Moses doesn't get to go over into the land, who does go? Joshua. Joshua. Okay, Joshua. What was Jesus' name? In the original language? Yeshua, yeah, which means God is salvation. So in both cases, Joshua, Yeshua, God is salvation, is the one who is going to go. Yeah, in uh, Deuteronomy, they're told to do all that I command. In Matthew, it's teach all that I command so that others will become disciples as well. In both, we promise that God will never leave you or forsake you. So, and, and there's loads more we could look at. And right through the Gospels, we could look at examples of where Jesus is portrayed as being the new Moses. So who is the Christ, according to Matthew? He is the new Moses. He is the one who has come to 
bring freedom from exile. He has come to not give you a new law, but help you to, uh, to come into the completion of what the law was intended to do, which is to change the heart, not just to give us rules to keep. Jesus is the new Moses who has come to deal with all the problems in the world. And he does that through teaching. He does that ultimately through then sending us out to do what Moses commissioned his people to do, go into the land and be a blessing to them, take uh, the good news to them. Does that make sense? Any questions on Matthew? <laughs> on, on the whole Gospel of Matthew? Any, any verse of the Gospel of Matthew? <laughs> All right, let's do Mark. Um, you can turn the page this time. Now, Mark is a slightly less straightforward one uh, than Matthew, but <clears throat> stick with me. We'll get through it. Um, and Mark, Mark is a challenging text, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah, Tim told me yesterday that, uh, is it just at this service you're, you're preaching through Mark for an entire year? Yeah, great. So um, how far are you through it? Great. Well, I'll try not to, uh, you know, prove that you've got chapters one and two wrong. Sorry? <laughs> are you meant to be preaching that? <laughs> well, interestingly, that, that's the one that most people get wrong. And uh, it's really... <laughs> really easy to be heretical over and um, in the third century 400 people were burnt at the stake for mispreaching that pa- no I'm kidding I'm kidding <laughs> okay Mark Mark is a tricky gospel so it's, it's the shortest but actually there are things about it that make it really complex so so it's really funny like when people become a Christian and they say where should I start people often recommend Mark because it's the shortest of the gospels I'm like oh my word you probably haven't read Mark for a while because it's actually really complex it's great because short is great but it's not the most forward because there's some really tricky stuff in it and it's often uh, referred to as, as an, an apocalyptic gospel which means um, not about the end of the world uh, it, it means it's sort of unveiling something of uh, of God's reality of a spiritual reality and it is a complex it's a cryptic gospel in many ways it was Probably the first account to be written, written primarily to Gentiles, uh, that is non-Jews, and we can tell that because he translates Aramaic phrases and explains Jewish customs. So, for example, when he talks about hand-washing in chapter 7, he explains what that is and why they do it. Um, Mark was not an eyewitness to the gospel, at least not for most of it, but he was Peter's interpreter. And uh, there's an ancient tradition, all those words there that look peculiar, uh, they are names of ancient texts, um, from Eusebius, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus and Tertullian, who uh, talk about um, Mark essentially being Peter's interpreter, the one who took Peter's story and then relayed it for the rest of the world. And we know that Peter had a close relationship with Mark, because in 1 Peter 5 verse 13, he refers to him as my son, which is a, a, a quite a kind, intimate term. And if you were to compare the structure of Mark's gospel with Peter's own proclamation of the gospel in Acts chapter 10, you find it basically follows the same sort of pattern. So it seems that Mark was taking Peter's story, Peter's experience of Jesus, and putting that on paper in a slightly confusing way. (laughs) So next page. In order to think about this question, uh, who, who is the Christ? Who is Jesus and what has he come to do? I want us to look at three titles that were given to Jesus. So, uh, great, we, we are in three blocks here. So what I'd like you to do, don't like make a massive group with your third of the room, but um, just on the tables or in the rows that you're in, I want you to look at the particular text that I'm going to assign you in a second and try and answer these questions. What is the title that 
uh, is regularly given to Jesus or, or used of him. By whom is it given? Like, who is the person that says it? And then what is the significance of that title? And you may need to refer to some Old Testament passages in order to, um, to think of that. So this column over here, um, you are going to do the first box. That's Mark 1, Mark 3, Mark 15. Um, this one in the middle, um, <laughs> you've, you've got tons of references in yours from Mark. Don't worry about that. To be honest, once you've read the first one, you'll know what the title is. <laughs> um, so, but you may want to skim through a couple of them quite quickly um, to kind of get an idea because there are some interesting things going on there. Um, and this column over here, you're going to take uh, the third column, Mark 10, 47, 48, etc., etc. So we're just going to take five minutes over this. So it's really quick. Don't overthink it. It's Quite straightforward. Um, Five minutes. What is the title? By whom is it given? And what is the significance? Go. So, um, group one over here. Uh, You were looking at Mark 1, uh, Mark 3, Mark 15. What is the title? Whose son is the Christ? Son of God. God. Okay. You all agree on that? There wasn't someone else in that column that disagreed. Great. Fantastic. So what is the title? Son of God. Who, who gives this title to Jesus? Who uses it of him? The author. Sorry? The author. The author, yep. Impure spirits. Impure spirits. And a centurion. And a centurion. Okay. Now, bear in mind, I said that Mark wasn't part of the original band of disciples. He wasn't an eyewitness. So he's sort of an outsider. Impure spirits, sort of outsiders, yeah. Centurion, an outsider, okay? So not the people that you would naturally assume to be sort of close to Jesus or even like part of Israel or even part of like the good side of spirituality. Like demons say this, he is the son of God. Interesting. So what is the title? Son of God, by whom is it given? Outsiders, Mark, demons and centurions. What is the significance of that title, son of God? What does it, what did it mean? Did anyone get to look at that 2 Samuel 7 passage? I, talk to me about the 2 Samuel 7 passage. We, asked, we said that the significance of that passage was the telling of Jesus and the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Great, okay. And the foreshadowing of the Samuel, yeah. Exactly. So, in 2 Samuel 7, in fact, let's read the verse because this will be relevant to a whole load of things. Um, 2 Samuel 7. <clears throat> um, Okay, so this is a promise that God is making to King David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And then it goes on, it says, when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with flogging inflicted by men. Um, But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed uh, from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, that's a a really important passage for understanding what it means to be the Messiah, uh, what what people were looking forward to. So there's loads we could say about that. But you were right to pick out the focus there which is the relationship between God and this person this person who would come from the line of David would be like the relationship of a father and a son so the word or the phrase son of God means Messiah it means this one it means this person that comes in the line of David now we and particularly uh, now knowing the rest of the story and having an idea of the trinity um 
we think of Son of God as if it means second person of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's not what it means in the Bible. That's certainly not what it meant there. Uh, it wasn't actually a divine title. We think it, it means that he is God. And of course, Jesus is God. <laughs> Don't throw things at me yet. But, but the, the point is, the t- term Son of God would just have meant to the original he- hearers, this one, this promised one that came from the line of David, whose kingdom would be established and would never fail. Okay. Is that all right? Yes, sir. Good. Good. I really like you. You're, <laughs> you're very positive and very smiley and very loud. So that's good. Uh, that's good. I, I keep going. Um, and I'll be more like this man. Um, so great. Okay. So what's the first title? Son of God, which means Messiah. It means the promised one uh, from 2 Samuel 7. It was given by outsiders, interestingly. Okay. Middle group. Um, what was the title in your passages? Son of man. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and by whom is it given? Jesus. Okay, so this is the one that Jesus uses primarily of himself. Yeah. Not in a kind of like, everyone calls him, hey, you're the son of God. No, 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 son of man. Like, they're not in a kind of corrective sort of way, but this was just how Jesus understood his own ministry. Okay, um, what do you think is the significance of this? This is a bit of a tough one, but um, any, any thoughts on this? Eternal power. Yeah. <laughs> you said that and immediately just went, like bracing yourself for me just to go, no, you fool. <laughs> no, yeah. There's, so there was a, there's a real sense of power to this. And, and it comes through in that Daniel chapter 7 passage. Um, yeah, so l- l- let me give you a bit of background to this phrase, the son of man. Um, it's used in the Old Testament quite a few times. In Ezekiel, for example, uh, he uses it of himself or it is used of him 39 times I think and in one sense it just means human so uh, if you read the Narnia books it says you know daughter of an Adam and daughter of Adam daughter of Eve or, or, or what is it son of Adam son of Eve. yeah son of Adam daughter of Eve or, or however he phrases it basically like, these these phrases that essentially just mean human being like male and female human being it, it's that kind of thing son of man just means um, a human being very often when it is used in these texts but by the time you get to Daniel chapter 7 it had begun to be um, used almost like a, a messianic title a title for a particular son of man who would do a particular thing so in Daniel chapter 7 um, you get this story which is peculiar but if we had time to talk a bit about the temple today, we would definitely go into this a little bit, but we're not going to do it. But in Daniel 7, you get this story where you've got these beasts which are waging war against God's people. And so you have this scenario where the Ancient of Days, who is God, is sitting in a courtroom. And then this figure called the Son of Man approaches him on his throne and he is representing Israel. So it seems like the Son of Man here is either uh, like an embodiment of Israel, like the beasts were the embodiments of particular nations, or one who is coming on behalf of Israel. It's the Messiah. And so the Son enters the courtroom, but he comes in on what? A cloud, yeah, which is not normal. I didn't get here on a cloud. Like, (laughs) uh, no matter how great you think I am, like, I'm not... (laughs) I'm not that great. If you come into a courtroom on a cloud, that is a symbol of your power and your divinity because God is the one who travels on the clouds. So we get this strange sort of scene where this son of man who is somehow subordinate to the guy on the throne also seems to share the same sort of divinity as the guy on the throne, which is odd, right? 
And if you were reading this before you understood the Trinity or before the coming of Jesus, I don't know what you would make of this. You would probably imagine that it's talking about Israel being somehow divinely chosen by God and coming before God so that God can say, yes, you are right and the other nations need to be punished. That seems to be what's going on in Daniel 7. But there are hints of divinity that are strange. Now, Jesus uses this phrase, son of man, about himself again and again and again. And it seems to be that he is saying, I am this Daniel 7 character. I am the representative or the embodiment of Israel, and I am somehow divine, which is fascinating because we often think Son of God is the divine title, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, second person of the Trinity. That's really not. It just means Messiah. Son of man, that's the, that's the divine claim. So when Jesus is standing um, at his trial in Mark chapter 14, the high priest says, are you the Messiah? And, and Jesus says, well, more than that, I'm the Son of man. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And what does the guy say? He says, you've heard the blasphemy. Like he understood that this was a claim to divinity. There's more that we can say about that, but let's move on. Okay, so, so Son of God, Son of Man, uh, third column. What was the phrase in your passages? Son of David. Son of David. Okay. And uh, who, who uses that phrase of Jesus? And what was uh, particular about Bartimaeus? Blind. He was blind. Okay, so you've got blind Bartimaeus. Who else uses it? Teachers of the law. Teachers of the law. Interesting. Who were, uh, as someone shouted out, they were blind, spiritually. Like, <laughs> but that's exactly the point, right? The, the people that call him that are the people who are blind, literally, spiritually. One gets healed, one doesn't. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, son of David, what, what does that mean? Um, what's the significance of that? Yeah. I will establish your line and your kingdom. Yeah. And will not let, will not turn away from that. Yes. All of this. Brilliant. So that same sort of two Samuel seven passage. So interestingly, there it says, "From your line, David, your son will be raised up, but he'll be to me like a son." So both the son of David and the son of God are messianic titles. Which then, in Mark's gospel, these three sort of get mashed together in a way to say, "Who is the Christ?" He is. He's the son of man. He's the son of God. He's the son of David. He's the long awaited Messiah. But he is more than just an earthly king. He is the one whose whose kingdom will be established forever. He is the representative of Israel, the one that God will judge on behalf of. And he is somehow God himself. What a powerful combination of things. We'll take a break in just a second. Let's finish Mark really, really quickly. If we just turn the page, and this will take about three minutes. So who is the Christ? He is the Son of Man, the Son of God, and the Son of David. But if you were to read through Mark's Gospel, you would find... Um, I think three major themes. If you look at what takes up the biggest space in Mark's gospel, it's these two things. One, the activity of Jesus. So uh, in Mark's gospel, Jesus is constantly doing stuff. He is healing people. He is casting out evil spirits again and again and again. And in particular, from sort of chapter one to chapter eight, there are just constant demonstrations of power again and again and again. Jesus is showing his power over spirits, over sickness. The word immediately is used 42 times in John. In, in Mark compared to seven in Luke and only four in John. It is a fast-paced 
gospel. I mean, bear in mind there wasn't punctuation in Mark's gospel in the way that there is now. In the original language, it's like, Jesus did this, then immediately, 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 immediately. We lose the force of that because we have chapter breaks, but actually it's like Jesus finished that and immediately on to the next thing. It's like he's constantly on the go, showing these demonstrations of power. So we see the activity of Jesus. The second major theme is that the passion of Jesus, that is, um, everything surrounding his death. So uh, Martin Kaler um, writes that Mark is a passion narrative with an extended introduction, because in the way that Mark is structured, so much of it is geared around the build-up to and the experience of his death. That seems to be such a major theme. But then the second, or sorry, the third element which flows on from that is the theme of the cost of following Jesus. And there seems to be in Mark, more than even in the other Gospels, this expectation that Jesus is going to suffer and that is a core part of what he has come to do but then what it looks like to follow Jesus is actually modeled on Jesus' own suffering. So if you look in the table just below and on the right hand side you get this sort of repeated theme it happens three times. Jesus predicts his death in chapters, uh, chapter 8 and in chapter 9 and in chapter t- 10 and then each time the disciples misunderstand what he's talking about because they had no frame of reference for the idea that the Messiah was going to die. That didn't seem good news to them and so Jesus then says well no this is going to happen and it's in God's plan and any one of you who wants to follow me you need to have this expectation as well so Jesus seemed to his ministry in Mark it seems to be summed up with this threefold understanding he's the son of uh, God the son of man and the son of David and he has come to uh, to fight the powers and to do incredible things, but also to suffer. And anyone who follows after him should experience to suffer as well. So who is the Christ? He is the son of man. He's the son of God, the son of David. And he is, I think, the suffering servant of Isaiah. What is the crisis? What has he come to do? I think he's come to deal with the powers uh, that cause suffering, that cause evil, that cause pain, that cause oppression in this world. How has he come to deal with it? Well, he's come to take the full force of that evil onto himself at the cross, to quench its power once and for all. But anyone who follows him must be willing to go through the same thing, to pick up the cross and to follow him. So Mark's gospel, <laughs> you new Christian, what's the first thing you want to read? Bam, that suffer. <laughs> like this is pick up your cross, day one of being a Christian. I mean, it's a really important message. And I think actually it's a message that many of us in the church have missed um, or, or have underemphasized. Um, But it's not an easy message, is it? And that is Mark's gospel in a nutshell. Great. Okay. Is this making sense so far? Great. Um, Anything that you've been like, I I, I disagree or that was too quick or um, anything that wasn't clear enough? What does the word gospel itself mean? Yeah, it it means good news. So, um, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> basically, <laughs> I was going to elaborate on that, but that's just basically what it means. It means good news. Yeah. One yeah. quick question. You said earlier about the order of things not necessarily being yeah. in order. Yeah. And, and what's your personal opinion on how that relates to the truthfulness of it? Obviously, yeah. as Gary and Annie were saying about you put a lot on chronology. Yep. Um, what, what's your view on that, particularly when yeah. people in, in might be sort of just interested in the coming Yes. Yeah, good question. So uh, for the recording, the question was, um, I said earlier that things are not necessarily in the right order but, uh, or in the same order, but what's the implications of that for truthfulness? So I would say uh, everything in the Gospels is true. Um, uh, I don't think that the Gospel writers have made things up, but I think that they have, like any journalist would, decided to portray things in a... Uh, Tim's taking a photo, so I'm just going to pose it. 
Uh, and, and now I'll do a good teaching pose or something. Or <laughs> if someone could just fall over or something, that would be... Okay. And this is all going on the podcast as well, so it's like an audio commentary of a photo. Um, uh, so I, I would say everything is true, um, but the things have been arranged in a particular order in order to... Um, to help us to understand the significance of it. So any journalist will do this, or any um, novelist. I mean, you get, you get films or, or books which just sort of cut back in time and go, here's a reflection, here's a, like, a, a flashback or a flash forward, or these sorts of things. And, of course, they are fictitious. But, um, uh, but you may even get that on something that is... Um, take Dunkirk, for example, the film Dunkirk. Um, so all these different stories woven together. Sometimes you see it from this perspective and then it cuts to this perspective. And, and what it's helping you to do is to understand the significance of the whole event from different perspectives. And so the order of it is designed in order to keep certain things hidden until the moment where it's going to hit you most and to see how the things connect together. Um, now, obviously, that's a slightly fictitious version of uh, a historic event. But I think that I would say the Gospels are totally true. I believe that everything happened. Um, but for me, the fact that things are in a slightly different order is not contradictory. Um, it would be a problem for me if one of the Gospel writers said, this happened in this order and it could never have been any other way. Or um, uh, if, if one of them said something that meant that the other could absolutely not be true, that would cause me a problem. Um, but we tell stories differently all the time. So I could tell you a story about something that happened uh, in my family, and I wouldn't bother sharing certain details to you because most of you don't know my family. But for Tim, for example, who does know my family, maybe I would share it slightly differently or tell it in a different order because there's information that he has that wouldn't be relevant to you. So uh, I say all of it is completely truthful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so understanding what, uh, what this kind of text uh, was and what the conventions were about it is really important. And then understanding certain things about the culture and, and the setting, for example. So if Jesus is telling one story in one gospel and it looks different to the other, um, but you realise, oh, actually, it's a different place or a different time in his ministry because he shared it in this place here and, and this place here. Just understanding all those kind of things is, is really important. Um, should we do Luke's gospel? Okay, don't turn the page to Luke. We're going to do the same thing we did with Moses. Some of you looked already. That's okay. That's okay. Don't worry. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a bit of the story of Luke. Uh, sorry, the story of Jesus as told in Luke's gospel. So the story begins, and, and again, I want you to think about this. Does this remind you of a particular story? I'll give you a clue. It's in the Bible. It's not, it's not like Harry Potter or something. So uh, Jesus was born and kept in a cupboard under the, no. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Why do I say these things? Um, okay. So uh, let me tell you the story of Jesus according to the Gospel of Luke. So it begins actually um, before Jesus. It begins with a couple, a couple called Elizabeth and Zechariah. Um, Elizabeth, the woman of this couple, is barren, unable to have a child. But then there is this miraculous encounter in the temple uh, where they're blessed by a priest 
The result of which is a miracle child is born. That child is no normal child. He grows up to be a prophet. And when uh, they know that this child is going to be born, um, what do they do? They sing a song of triumph. They celebrate um, this. Now, a bit of context for this story. Uh, At this time, the word of God is rare. People just aren't hearing from God. There aren't prophets in the land. So this miracle child is going to be unique in so much as he is a prophet. And his ministry is a precursory ministry. It's not actually all about him. He is preparing the way for someone who is coming ahead of him. Is any of this sounding familiar already? Shall I keep going? Some story of Samuel. Samuel. Yeah. Okay. You can turn over the pages. You got it right. So um, well done. Let's carry on the story. So uh, a miracle child is born. He is a prophet uh, in a time where the word of God is rare. He has a precursory ministry preparing um, for the one who is to come. You then get this um, this anointing that comes by the spirit. So now let's bring in 1 Samuel 16. Um, you get this story where the prophet goes to see Jesse um, and to find the king who isn't any of the sons who Jesse parades in front of him. It's actually David who is the shepherd and he goes and he anoints him. And in Luke's gospel, we get Jesus anointing um, with the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter three at his baptism. Uh, We're told uh, in both stories that the relationship between God and his anointed one is like that of a father and a son. So uh, the heavens open at the baptism and God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. We're told in 2 Samuel 7, the relationship to David and in particular to David's anointed one, um, the the son that will follow from him will be like a father-son relationship with God. Um, At what time do their ministry start, both David and Jesus? 30 years old. Incredible. Like God gets it bang on in the details. Um, and, and Luke emphasises that. Why? Because it makes sense because he is trying to portray Jesus as the new David. It doesn't really make a lot of sense for the other gospel writers to talk about that because I don't know what happened at 30 in Moses' life. or um, That doesn't seem to be quite as significant. He's left that detail in there for a particular reason. You then get, after this sort of anointing, uh, this moment where they face the enemy. So um, uh, in David, you get the, the famous story of David and Goliath. In fact, of course, he faces many enemies. Jesus, what is it? It's the facing of the enemy in the wilderness. Uh, the result of which you'd expect, like he's won this great victory. Everyone will be like, yes, you're great. That's not what happens. In both cases, there's this divided crowd. Some people are pro this David or son of David, and some people are against him. You then get a whole series, where 1 Samuel 19 to 30, this long stretch there, um, of travel and threats. So David is traveling and he's actually fleeing from, um, from persecution and people who want to kill him. And there's obvious like, threats to his life as he's traveling. Jesus exactly the same. Luke 9 to 19, he's traveling. He's going and preaching in one particular town. Some people love him, other people try and stone him or throw him off a cliff. Um, it, it, it seems to be a parallel there. And both stories culminate in the arrival in Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 5, they arrive in the city, they rename it the city of David and take the throne. Where does Luke's gospel build towards? It's Jesus coming in to take his rightful place in the city of Jerusalem. So it seems that Luke has deliberately told the story in order to remind us of David, to say that Jesus is the new David. Now, going back to your question, like, do I think that Luke just made it up? Do I think that Luke just thought, ah, oh, you know what would really help people is if I could somehow make it seem like Jesus is like David. Well, let's just change some of the details of his life and let's maybe just pretend there was this John the Baptist story, pretend he was 30 years old. No, no, I don't think that's the case at all. And if that were the case, that would be a massive problem for my faith. Um, but I don't think that's the case. I think what he has done is he's looked at all the available details and we know he had a lot of available details because he said that in Luke 1, which we saw earlier. 
earlier. He surveyed all this stuff and he thought, man, Jesus is the new David. And loads of people have come to that understanding. So he's like, how can I tell this story for my friend Theophilus in such a way that he really gets the significance of this? I'm going to just weave all these details together in the most compelling narrative to make it abundantly clear. Jesus is the new David. He is the king we have all been waiting for. Does that make sense? Jesus is the new David. So who is the Christ? He's the new David. What is the crisis? Well, um, I think a whole load of things. I mean, they, they come through in that telling of the story. So, um, so, so enemies, um, rival kingdoms, and we'll sort of come back to that a little, little bit later. Um, uh, maybe things about Jerusalem not being as it was meant to be, the, the proper holy ruling place. I mean, the city of David, that phrase is used again and again and again through Luke's gospel. He talks about Jerusalem more than any other gospel, which we'll see in a second. Um, so it all seems to be focused around this. Turn to the next page. Some of the key um, themes that come through in Luke's gospel. And again, we're going through this quite quickly. We could spend ages on Luke. Um, There are emphases in Luke that don't come through in the other Gospels, which is not to say that the other Gospel writers didn't care about them. It's just that Luke particularly wanted to ram them home for a particular reason. And some of them are Jesus' compassion, the way he bears burdens of others. So in Luke's Gospel, Jesus regularly appears to the meek and the lowly. Um, in the, the, the Christmas narrative, we're told Mary's viewpoint more than Joseph's and that of her family. We're told the story of the shepherds in Luke's Gospel, not the wise men. So Matthew emphasises the wise men he wants to speak about those sort of people in power from other nations coming in and experiencing the christian uh, the christmas message luke goes straight down at the lowly the outcasts of society the angel uh, appears first to mary rather than to joseph that's not to say that he's suddenly just gone oh, it'd be better if it was mary let's just change that like they both happened it's just that luke emphasizes that there are all sorts of warnings to the rich that come through in luke's gospel jesus eats with sinners again and again he, he spends time with lepers uh, with the crippled and with the blind he spends time with tax collectors which none of us want to do but Jesus does that that's amazing he tells stories about the lost coin and the prodigal son um, women are mentioned positively way more in Luke's gospel than in other gospels so Mary is mentioned 13 times the widow of Nain a woman with ointment um, Luke seems to emphasize Jesus compassion and his his ministry to women because Jesus wants to again uh, say that uh, sorry, Luke wants to again say that Jesus reached out to those who society often considered on the outside, considered lowly, considered maybe unworthy. And Gentiles as well. There are stories like the Good Samaritan or the Centurion in chapter 7, which come through here. So Jesus bear, bears burdens and he reaches out to those who are maybe on the outside. But what's more, Luke emphasizes the fact that Jesus provides strength to bear burdens. So Luke's gospel both begins and ends in the temple, the temple, the place of worship, the place where man and God can meet, where man can find forgiveness and strength and freedom. And Luke, more than the other gospels, emphasizes prayer. He emphasizes the Holy Spirit. I mean, in Luke, uh, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 18 times. 
in Acts, which is the second part of Luke, Luke the sequel, um, is 57 times compared to six in Mark and 12 in Matthew. And he talks about joy and praise in chapters one to two repeatedly. It's like joy, praise, celebration again and again, right the way through the gospel. Despite talking about the people who were the outcasts, Luke celebrates praise. Why? Because Jesus turns mourning into praise. He turns mourning into dancing and celebration. Why? Through worship, through, or how? Through worship, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jerusalem is a real key place in the gospel. I mean, it all begins there in Jerusalem at the temple in chapters one to four. It's all based there. And then Jesus goes to Galilee and he ministers there from chapters four to nine. And then there's this turning point where 951, he says he sets his face to Jerusalem. It's that moment where Jesus is like, okay, this is what I came for. It's time. And he sets his face to Jerusalem. And from then on, he's headed directly there. There's a long and steady journey Uh, There's this phrase in 1333, it says, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And then at the end of the gospel, what are the disciples told to do? Stay here in this city, the city of David right now, until the Holy Spirit comes. Um, So Richard Burridge, uh, in his book on the gospels, he says, Jerusalem is named about 33 times in Luke's gospel, as often as in Matthew, Mark and John combined, um, while it comes 60 times in Acts. The rest of the New Testament has only 14 times, which shows how central it is in Luke's thinking. Yeah. He was a Gentile, wasn't he? Luke? Yeah. Yeah. He was the only one that was a Gentile, am I right? Uh, The only gospel writer. Yeah. 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 No, I'm just wondering whether, you know, with him coming to you or like that. Well, and I think part... So what what are you wondering? I'm not sure I'd say it was more detailed than the others. Um, maybe my notes are more detailed. <laughs> um, uh, I just think it's fascinating. Well, he's particularly writing to a Gentile. So he's writing to Theophilus, who it's hard to know exactly who he is. But chances are he was a ruler, maybe who... So this is a theory that Luke and Acts come to... Well, that's not a theory. They do come together. They're two parts. Um, But the theory is partly um, that Luke may have written Luke and Acts in order to give a defence for Paul's ministry. So Paul, at the end of his life, where Acts ends, is in prison. And it's possible that Theophilus was a Roman ruler um, who uh, had... Paul's fate in his hand, or at least had some kind of influence there. And so it seems like Luke wrote um, Luke to show this is the ministry of Jesus. And then how does Acts begin? Um, In my former letter, Theophilus, I told you the work that Jesus began to do, which implies now I'm going to tell you the work he's continued to do. But where is he? He's up there. So this is how Jesus continued his work through the church. Interesting. Uh, if, If Luke portrays Jesus as the new David, who came after David? Who, who, who was David's son? Solomon. What did Solomon do? Build the temple. So the church is like the new Solomon, right? So there's this kind of continuation of the story. And chances are Luke has told this, this Jesus church, David, Solomon story in order to convince this guy that Paul is not doing anything different from what Jesus did. He's continuing this ministry. Um, now it's hard to know exactly how much Theophilus would have understood all the nuances of it being a Gentile himself but I think these probably these people were closer to the story than we were I think they probably would have got a lot of it so who is the Christ according to Luke he is the new David what's the crisis 
what Jerusalem isn't being that shining light it was meant to be, that place where God was dwelling and man and God could meet together. And, and so he has come to turn that all around, to bring the kingdom. And he's come to do it by reaching out to those that society is putting on the outside. He's come to the... He's come to the women, he's come to the Gentiles, he's come to the poor, he's come to the oppressed. And he said, there's a place for you in this kingdom under this compassionate good shepherd of a leader. Okay, any questions on any of that? I was just going to say, can you imagine the um, the excitement that Luke had when he was on the kind of recovery of deep stuff? Yeah. I mean, it must have been dancing on the spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and excitement of being able to think, oh man, I could, I love it if I'm preaching and I'm like, oh, this is a really difficult point. How can I get this to connect with people? And I think, oh, there's an illustration. Or there's something that's really going to hit home. When Luke is suddenly thinking, oh man, I've come to understand this. This is incredible. And then like, oh, I can really shape my gospel in a way to help people come to this understanding. Yeah, I'm sure he, he did a lot of time dancing on the spot. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. The other thing that's striking is mm. that all of these themes from the different Gospels, this was all in Jesus' ministry. It yeah. wasn't he's going, uh, I'd better re-establish a bit of the kingdom to help Matthew's Gospel, mm. and I'll do a bit of being like David, because Luke could do that. Yeah. His whole ministry was, I am here to do God's will, yeah. to establish the kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's, I mean, this may sound like a ludicrous thing to say, but it's almost like, like there's some divine author that... <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. Um, <laughs> foolish me. Seriously, it's yeah. mind blowing, isn't it? Yeah. No one would have made up this book. No one would have made up this story. Tell us, man. It really, just—I mean, it honestly blows my mind. And what we're doing here is. Just the most precious thing we could do. We, uh, God has written this book that tells us his heart and his story in the most powerful way. And I understand why people agonize over the details and there are big questions. And I've studied theology at an academic level and I understand it's really important to know the languages and to grapple with the big questions and that sort of thing. But, you know, Jesus and it's in John's gospel that's not my topic for today but if you let me dip into John's gospel for a moment like Jesus said to the Pharisees you search the scriptures thinking that in them you will find the answers and they point to me you missed it if we ever reduce reading the bible to thinking this is just a bunch of dusty old difficult texts that are irrelevant or just too tricky too complicated um, or we get excited by the complications and we fixate on them and we forget to look to the one that it points to, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of David, the King of Kings, the new Moses, the new David. I think we grieve the heart of God. We should read this thing and all dance on the spot. 
And we should be ready to answer those difficult questions. I'm not dismissing that at all. We should definitely be prepared in season and out of season. But actually, Peter doesn't say be prepared in season and out of season to deal with every difficult thing, but to explain the hope that's within you. How do I get this hope? Where did it come from? And how can you have it as well? And that's the good news. And um, I think it's a good book. It's worth reading. <laughs> it's mind-blowing. Okay. Um, at the end of the notes, you'll, uh, I was asked to give you some suggested exercises and things you could look at, and um, some of them are uh, on this session. So um, how do you find the idea that the gospel writers were selective and creative in the way they told the Jesus story? Um, does that idea concern you or does it help you better appreciate them? Uh, maybe, maybe choose one of those gospels, read it through, bear in mind what you've learnt. Um, about the agenda and the focus of each writer and see if there are things that you notice that you wouldn't have seen before. Um, Or, yeah, I mean, if anything has struck you from this session today, um, even if it's just that thought, what, what role does the Bible have in my life? How does it excite me to worship God more? Does it excite me to worship God more? Um, anything that you want to reflect on feel free to go for you don't have to follow one of those questions but there we go okay that's the first main theme for the day the synoptic gospels